Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about caring for Mother Nature, cultivating sustainable well-being in today's changing climate. My first guest is Phyllis Stiles. We are diving deeply into bees today, and my guest, which I'm so happy to have her in the house, is Phyllis Stiles, who was determined to mobilize communities across America to reverse pollinator decline. Phyllis Stiles founded the national program Bee City USA in 2012. In 2018, Bee City USA merged with the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation to expand the program's depth and reach. Styled had served communities from West Africa to the Mississippi Delta and nonprofits in fields from natural resource and farmland protection to civic leadership and development. She enjoys hiking, trying to speak French, and attempting to play her upright bass. Her biggest pleasure comes from meeting champions for pollinators around the country and bearing witness to their creativity and passion. And that is why I'm so excited to talk with you, Phyllis. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, well, this is this is a great pleasure and also a, a great curiosity. And I know I'm not alone in my curiosity to raise bees, but I think one of the first things that we need to do is to educate us lay people on the difference between being the garden variety beekeeper and being the pollinator or the master pollinator to really help save what's going on in our environment. Sure. You know, I like to tell folks that when I started keeping bees back in uh, 2008, there was no learning curve to it when it came to understanding what was going on with the pollinators. In fact, it turned out to be a spike, a vertical line straight up. I really didn't know anything about pollinators, their decline, how important they are for the planet, and our wonderful European honeybees brought here to the Americas in 1622 they introduced me to all those other pollinators and particularly all those other native bees that were here in uh, North America before the European honeybee uh, decided to settle here. So when we talk about a pollinator and the importance of pollinators and preserving them and restoring their potency, what are we really talking about statistically? Well, there's a report that came out in uh, 2016 from a very important task force put together by the United Nations that said uh, 40% of insect pollinator species are at risk 
of extinction right now on the planet. Uh, now, I want you to put that in the context that 90% of our plants, and that includes trees, shrubs, wildflowers, you name it, 90% of the world's wild plant species rely on the help of a pollinator to be able to reproduce. Yeah. So that's why that statistic from the UN is so stunning. If 40% of our insect pollinators are at risk of extinction, what does that mean for 90% of the world's wild plant species? Well, it means we're at risk. <laughs> yeah, and then add to that, one in three bites of food we eat and 75% of our food crops rely on pollinators in some fashion. So it's a serious issue, and that's what got my attention. And the work that you do with B-City USA really has been the creation of a powerful army of volunteers. And I would love for you to talk about it because you're doing it in cities and you're doing it on college campuses, which is how we found you, by the way, was a mention in, in one of the local Malibu newspapers. Right. I decided that I'd spent my whole career doing various types of nonprofit work. And after I became a beekeeper and learned more and more about the plight of the pollinators, I just decided, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. And I think maybe there's something out there that could be done that is not already being done by a lot of wonderful organizations. And so with the help of a steering committee that we formed together in our local B chapter, we started designing B City USA and we really took on the mantle that Margaret Mead gave us uh, that says that we should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And that was very empowering to us. We didn't need somebody to give us approval. We didn't need the government to give us approval. We didn't need uh, boatloads of money to affect pollinator conservation. We just needed committed volunteers uh, to get started. And what does that look like? What is the engagement of a committed volunteer? I mean, you go to campuses, you educate students, and then in turn, what is the give back? What are the students doing on campus to promote a, a hospitable pollinating environment? The reason that campuses are so excited, and when we're talking about campuses, we're talking about colleges and universities, is that they actually control their landscape. They have landscape staff. And they don't need permission from anybody to decide how they're going to landscape it. And so they give us the perfect model for what we can all be doing to think about these landscapes that are ornamental, our backyards, our public spaces, our traffic islands, our parks, you name it, and reframe how we think of them beyond just being pretty and manageable and neat and safe. All those things are important, but now what if we reframe that to include habitat for pollinators and other wildlife? Now you're hitting a home run because the great thing about this kind of conservation, unlike so many other types of conservation that require massive, massive scale operations to uh, create enough habitat to sustain a particular species, you can actually provide all the habitat a bee would need right in your own backyard. Most of them don't go more than 100 yards 
from where they emerge as adults. Wow, I did not know that. And in terms of cost, we're really talking about very little cost for a, a high return on investment. You said that exactly right, because we're already landscaping. So we're already spending money on landscaping. But if we start to think about how we do our pest management so that it's pollinator friendly and look to Mother Nature for the cues or doing in a way that doesn't use chemicals or only uses them very, very sparingly, and we choose locally native plants that all of these pollinators co-evolved with over millions of years, it can have dramatic implications for our pollinator species. It can help them rebound. And the best example is what's happening with the monarchs in America and how people have gotten uh, the memo that monarchs need milkweed. It's the only plant they'll lay eggs on for their caterpillars. And so look at all these people that for the first time are planting milkweed in their yards. It's a wonderful thing to see. Indeed. We're going to take a break in a minute, but before we go to that break, I want to backtrack for a second and talk about what is contributing to the loss of pollinators. You mentioned pesticide exposure, but I also want to go back and talk a little bit about the loss of habitat and poor nutrition of the pollinators themselves, not having the right things to eat. Yeah, those are two biggies. Definitely. We are using an awful lot of pesticides in our country. And when we say pesticides, we mean herbicides, insecticides, and fungicides. There are a lot more pesticides than that, but it's an umbrella term. So I like to clarify that we're talking about uh, those three particular types of pesticides. And so that is huge. We know from reports out of California, it's the only state that reports pesticide use that only a third of the pesticides being used in California are attributed to agriculture. And California is a very agricultural state. So that's profound because if the other two-thirds are being used for other things besides agriculture, then if we change our ways and curb our pesticide use in our parks, in our yards, in our corporate campuses, uh, then we can really help the pollinators out. And then you mentioned habitat. That's huge. With population increases, uh, that means we're increasing agriculture. About 50% of our land mass is used for agriculture. And then, you know, our beautiful American lawn is not helping our pollinators. And depending on who's estimating, lawns constitute anywhere from the largest crop in America, the equivalent of the largest crop in America, to the fourth largest crop. So just You know, thinking about those two things, we have huge opportunities to reverse pollinator declines if we just look at habitat and pesticide use. Well, and when we talk about it in that context and how it trickles down or the domino effect to our food sources and the quality of the food that humans eat and other animals are eating, this is very synergistic. This is this is really important. And I, I, we're going to take the break. And when we come back, I want to talk more about the work that you do at B-City USA, some of the B-City campuses, because there are dozens of them around. I want to kind of give some shout outs to to ones that have come on recently. To learn more about what's going on over at B-City USA, please visit www.bcityusa.org. On Twitter, you can connect with Phyllis at Phyllis Styles, And on Facebook, that page is B-City 
USA. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Before we take that break, I want to mention a way I keep my own brain happy. Like so many of you, I try to learn something new every day. And that's why I'm a big fan of Blinkist, a new time-efficient app that serves my curious mind and a hunger for lifelong learning. In this fast-paced world, it's a challenge to juggle life's responsibilities and personal growth. This is where Blinkist comes in to help me nurture my well-being with consciously crafted brain food. Blinkist is the only app that distills the best takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to short and sweet, readable and audible summaries of 15 minutes or less. Blinkist is made for busy folks like you and me who like to read and want to stay informed but just don't have enough hours in the day to do it all. Blinkist makes it easy to finish four books in a day while you're on the go. More than 8 million people are using the massive and growing Blinkist library of self-help, business, health, history books, and more. I like Blinkist because in 15 minutes or less, I can expand my intelligence on any subject and boost my happiness through greater knowledge. I use Blinkist when I'm driving in the car. It helps make my travel time more relaxed and enjoyable. I've recently listened to Start With The Why by Simon Sinek and How To Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie, and I highly recommend them both to you. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash happiness and start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash happiness. Remember, that's Blinkist.com slash happiness. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about caring for Mother Nature, cultivating sustainable well-being with my guest today, Phyllis Stiles. Let's return to the conversation. So Phyllis, before the break, we were talking a little bit about what has contributed to the decline in pollinators, what you are doing about it over at Bee City. And I want to kind of bring awareness to people about Bee Cities in America and B campuses in America, because there are quite a few of them. Yeah, we're so excited because we started the program in 2012. And as of today, we have 134 affiliate cities and campuses in 36 states. And so 78 of those are cities and 56 of those are campuses. That's fantastic. And in, in a fairly short period of time. Yeah, and honestly, we feel like we really started in 2014 because, you know, you don't have a leader until you have followers. And so <laughs> we started in 2012 with Asheville, North Carolina, and we had lots of interest. But it wasn't until the fall of 2014 that we got our second city. It was Talent, Oregon. Wow. I know Talent, Oregon, actually. I know exactly where that is. That's so funny. Yep. Let me mention Dolly, because I, honestly, people don't understand how important it is to have the second one of anything. 
you don't get the third and fourth if you don't have the second. You make a very good point. And what was it about the connection with Dolly in Talent, Oregon, that clicked? Yeah, Dolly Borden was a new beekeeper, and she was uh, going to the College of the Melissa, a program for, oh gosh, I don't know how to describe it. It's the sacred way of beekeeping. And they had to do a service project in order to graduate from the College of the Melissa. And she chose making Talent Oregon a bee city as her service project. And she just really inspired all of her neighbors. And it, it was the absolute perfect place for us to get our second city. Beautiful. And what are some other cities across the country that have come on? Oh, gosh, Seattle was an early adopter. Washington, D.C. is uh, one of our cities. Uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina, nearby, is one of our superstars. They're all over the country. Madison, Wisconsin, Albuquerque, New Mexico, San Francisco. And then we have tiny little cities like Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. And then we have one military base, the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where the Wright brothers tested flight in this incredible prairie that support tons of pollinators today. This is fantastic. I am going to be actually doing a workshop in Boone, North Carolina in the the spring of 2019. I have to come look you up. (laughs) Oh, please do. And Boone is one of our bee cities. Oh, is it? Fantastic. As is uh, Appalachian State University located in Boone. Oh, wow. And what about the campuses? Because I think this is really neat. The idea that students can really learn about service projects and the, and the reward of, you know, very little, we, we mentioned this prior, very little financial investment and the, the reward, the exchange, the prize is so great. Talk about some of the campuses besides, besides Cal State University Channel Islands, which um, is the one that I'm familiar with. And you mentioned another out this way, Thousand Oaks. Right. And um, Southern Oregon University, right next door to Talent, Oregon, was our very first B campus. And that was through the efforts of some students there and the director of the uh, grounds department, Mike Oxendine. And he contacted me because he was so inspired by Ashland and Talent. And he said, Phyllis, why aren't college campuses allowed to apply for certification as B-Cities? And I said, well, Mike, why don't you help us figure out what that would look like? And he did. And he has been tremendously helpful all along. And now, of course, we have 56 campuses all across the country, large and small community colleges, research universities, religious institutions, you name it. And uh, they have to do a little more than the cities in terms of they have to incorporate it in their curriculum. They have to incorporate it into their service learning program. They have to mount signage on campus. Um, so uh, we, we upped it a notch for them because they have so much control over their campus. And uh, with the city, the idea is just to inspire everybody all across your community to get involved in doing what they can for pollinator conservation. We call it becoming more PC, and that means pollinator conscious. Becoming more PC. And I want to also mention that if you're interested in becoming a B-City or a B-Campus, that you can go to bcityusa.org 
and make an application. And the, the criteria is there. And in terms of the 56 and counting B campuses, they really are scattered all across the country from Auburn University in Alabama to Connecticut to Kentucky, Illinois. There is a large presence in Massachusetts, in North Carolina, of course, you mentioned Oregon, of course, is probably being right the first and the second or the second and the third. Texas, there's quite a bit. So you've like done amazing work. This is, it's really cool. Yeah, I think you mentioned earlier, Lisa, that it's very empowering. Uh, there's so much to be done in the world today, particularly when we're talking about the environment. And you can get discouraged, especially in the face of climate change. But this is something that each individual really can uh, see the results of. When they plant pollinator habitat, they can go out and look at the bees and the butterflies and the moths and the hummingbirds and the wasps and the flies. You, you plant it and literally they will come. Well, it's seeing, you know, like the Gaia principle, right? It's seeing like all of the pieces of this magnificent puzzle that we are a part of doing each of our little jobs. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> I, I want to touch upon something that you had written when I received my production notes. There was a wonderful Mark Twain quote that came along with it that I must read and talk with you about before we go. The quote is, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. And you found out your why not that long ago. <laughs> I get a little teary uh, when I think about that because the bees just have opened up a new world to me. And I get the joy of meeting some of the most wonderful people in our country because they just, they get the message. They hear about Bee City USA or Bee Campus USA. They contact me and they say, what can I do to help? And then they let me know what they're doing in their communities. And sometimes they run into stumbling blocks and we help each other out. We figure out the solution. And our job at BCDUSA and Campus USA is to spread that good news. Whenever we hear about something wonderful, we try to share it across the network so that everybody benefits from what they've learned. So what could be more joyful than that? It's just, I do feel like I found my purpose, and I'll never be able to thank the honeybees and other bees and other pollinators enough because it makes me just jump out of my bed every morning raring to go. Well, you know what, Phyllis? You realized that you were a pollinator. That's my guess. <laughs> You're right about that, Lisa. It, it, the human pollinator. It makes it easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, it's pretty easy when you're surrounded by positive people who want to do something good for each other and for the planet. Uh, that's that's such an easy sell. It, it makes you want to help them. Well, uh, we are going to be uh, turning our green acres that's under construction into a, a little bee village. I'll have to keep you posted, <laughs> Phyllis, and we'll have to Please keep, do. We, we will, Please we will do. post updates visually on that um, through social media to learn more about Bee City USA. Please visit the website www.bcityusa.org. You can connect directly with Phyllis Stiles on Twitter at Phyllis Stiles and on Facebook. The page is B City 
USA. And if you're at all curious about becoming a pollinator yourself, I urge you to visit the website and see how you can contribute and give back to this big, beautiful world that we all live upon. Phyllis, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you, Lisa. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing our conversation about caring for Mother Nature, cultivating sustainable well-being in today's changing climate. My next guest is Woody Tosh. Woody Tash is the founder and chairman of the Slow Money Institute, which has loaned over $57 million to over 600 small organic food enterprises. And he's also the former chairman and CEO of Investors Circle. I see one of the oldest angel investor networks in the country dedicated to sustainability. Woody is a frequent speaker and has been featured in the New York Times, Huffington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, The Sun, and many other media outlets. Woody graduated magna cum laude from Amherst College, where he won the Colin Armstrong Poetry Prize. So he's not only smart with money, he's smart with words. Hi, Woody. I love that introduction, except when it got to the end and got all the way back to college. That's a little scary, but thank you for that. Well, your people sent that to our people. <laughs> well, we just we, we wanted you to know it, but we didn't necessarily want you to buy it on the air. But since we started that way, then we have to talk about poetry because my book does start with a 20-page zany poem, and that's why we left that in my bio. And let's talk about the book. What we're talking about is Soil, Notes Towards the Theory and Practice of Nurture capital. And that really is the theme of the show, Nurture Capitalism, right? Well, of course, I'm going to say yes, because it's on the title of my book. The overarching theme is the same thing I've been kind of talking about and working on for for a bunch of years now, which is getting outside the box. Uh, Everyone says that we all kind of want to do it. We talk about wanting to create change on the ground where it's needed, not top down, et cetera, et cetera. So I've really taken these things to heart, and I'm trying to do it, not not just for the sake of doing it, but because if we don't do it, we will stay trapped in the same old little mental traps that keep our money in Wall Street and going up smokestacks in China and chasing algorithms and everything. So, so yeah, the whole thing is about a more imaginative approach, an approach that connects us to one another and to the soil and to the earth. And um, I have chosen to use some more than a little poetry this time around to see if I can kind of blast us, you know, out of our out of the traps we've been in. Well, blast us with the subtitle of your book. Oh, I thought you were going to read it. Come on, I want to hear you read it. Okay, I'm going to read it. Here we go. Soil 2017 of Earthworms, Billionaires, Aha, Moments, Mythic Implications, and the Considerable Virtues of Bringing Our Money Back Down to Earth. Not all of it, of course, but enough to matter. You made it sound so serious when you read it, and it is supposed to be playful. Um, and the book is playful and serious. And, and in fact, this may sound this is a little out of sequence. I normally wouldn't say this so early in the conversation, but but since we're on it, um, 
I, I realized after I wrote the book that I have that I have a style, a writing style, and I, it came out when I was writing the afterward. And the word, the style is lively, serious, as opposed to deadly serious. And that may sound a little weird again, out of context, but. Um, again, if we're going to change the way we think and feel and act, then we have to kind of reintegrate in a certain way. And to me, not taking ourselves too seriously, not getting trapped in all the deadly serious mumbo jumbo about finance, not being kind of daunted by all the expertise and the sophisticated you know, instruments, which by the way, most people don't understand, even some of the people that are in charge of understanding them. So it's really about uh, being willing to kind of take a deep breath, kind of laugh at ourselves a little bit and then move in a new direction. Well, isn't it the serious business of good fun and change? Well, absolutely. I, I, I was realizing as I was saying that last little, little ramble there, I, I, I can summarize all this in the first few words of the book, because when you open the book up, the first words that are kind of, you know, on a, on a little page by themselves are a very small, lively, serious poem. And it goes like this. If it's true that we are what we eat, may it also be true that we are not what we tweet. Amen. <laughs> I am so glad you laughed. If you didn't laugh, <laughs> you know, I was going to be I was going to be worried. No, of course I'm going to laugh. We are not what we tweet. Uh, well, in fact, if we tweet less and do more, we might get some seriously good stuff done. Right. And I would just add to that, you know, I I have a, a book with a lot of words in it. And they get kind of complicated sometimes. They're playful, but they, they go all over, you know, ideas of finance and return and soil biology and uh, composting and nutrition and health and local food systems. And, and you know, it starts with a 20-page mythic poem and ends with uh, 20 pages of photographs of the, of the lo- of photo essay to the farmers and chefs in the Boulder area who are doing such good work. And, you know, it, it, it can get really complicated but it has to stay playful and beautiful because deep down what we're doing is actually really simple. We're just taking a little of our money out of all the crazy stuff we don't understand and doing something that we do understand and that we know has innate value, which is helping small and mid-sized organic farmers near where we live. So talk a little bit, a bit about how you got started with this because you've helped more than 625 small organic farms and local food businesses around the world in the United States, Canada, yeah. France, Australia, and I'm sure other places. Yeah, most, mostly U.S., just a few dots elsewhere. Talk a little um, bit about how you started with this. Well, for me, it's a natural outgrowth of what I've been doing uh, my whole career. You know, I started as a very small-time venture capitalist in New York in the 80s and then was a foundation treasurer of an environmental uh, and sustainable ag grant maker in New York for most of the 90s. And then, as you mentioned in the intro, I, I ran something called Investor Circle for most of the next decade. So I've been on different kind of trajectories in finance and philanthropy and venture capital and whatever. And it always frustrated me that so many good people with such strong intentions, I'm talking about the investors and the foundations now, who wanted to do good with their money, who wanted to do something less destructive, whether you call it socially responsible investing the way we used to, or triple bottom line, or double bottom line, or impact investing, or conscious capital, all all these terms are just words for people who want to do something better with their money. And how, how despite all of this intent, and the many, many billions of dollars that I was in and around at different times, we could only get a trickle of it going in what I would call the right direction or a new direction or, or get it all the way down to the ground and the community because it kept getting trapped in all of these fiduciary and securities traps. 
and and we're spending all of our time trying to just pull little bits of it out. So, you know, with, it didn't take that long once I paused about 10 years ago to write and wrote my first book called Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money. Once I, once I was able to pause, you know, I realized, okay, all the metrics, all the numbers we're using, they're all skewed. They're all about consumerism and economic growth and industrialization and all these things. It's just the wrong way to be thinking about this if we want to do something on the ground. And of course, the ultimate metric is the soil, soil fertility. And I, I guess I'd say the punchline to all this as far as the soil goes, for people who are listening who, who haven't heard too many discussions about the soil, um, you are going to hear a lot more about it over the coming decade or so in terms of just climate change and carbon and carbon in the air, carbon in the soil. I'll just say one thing to jog everyone's attention. It turns out that the iconic act of agriculture that everyone associates with amber waves of grain, which is plowing, puts carbon in the atmosphere from the soil. And of course, we didn't know that when plowing was, you know, in its heyday, first developed and everything. So there's a lot of issues about carbon and soil. And of course, it's not just climate change, it's human health and water and a whole bunch of other things as well. You talk about slow money as creating a new economic story about bringing our money back down to earth. And this really dovetails into the, the plowing of the soil and, and helping people become more rooted in the way they invest their money and the way money well, is used. I, I love the, that you said the word rooted because that's a whole nother both literal and metaphoric you know, thing here. I, I, you know, I was deeply imprinted by E.F. Schumacher's book, Small is Beautiful. And, you know, before people might, some people listening might roll their eyes and say, oh, my God, small is beautiful. That's that's outdated. That's old 70s eco stuff. But it isn't outdated. Um, not at all. And uh, that's a whole discussion. Uh, I would just urge readers who are not familiar with that book to check it out. It's one of the most the pithiest and wisdom riddled you know, essay ever written. It was written by a man who was a Rhodes Scholar and senior economist for the British Coal Board after World War II, E.F. Schumacher. And he, late in his life, he had an epiphany that, about how disconnected Western economics is from nature and from, from true human well-being. So I won't say more about that other than to say that he, he talks about uh, what, he, what he called their footlooseness, kind of a funny word, but people, <laughs> people, people no longer rooted in place, people no longer connected to the places where they live. And of course, he was writing before virtual everything was even imagined, right, by most people. So, you know, today, everyone's attention is on their computer screen on, I mean, Lisa, I just heard the other day, I, I couldn't believe it. I was on my way to a slow money meeting here in Boulder, and there was a story on about the Tokyo subway system has developed an app for pregnant women so that when they get on the subway car, they can alert other people on the same subway car that they are pregnant and they need a seat. I, you know, I heard the same thing and I burst out laughing. I'm like, what happened to civility and just paying attention? It's, it's, un, it's unbelievable. So to me, that's like almost the ultimate of not being rooted. I mean, no one's anywhere. Everyone's just eyes are on a screen. On as far as far as money goes, everyone's attention is on the market or the markets. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago in the scheme of things, meaning in the scope of in the broad arc of history, that markets were actually places where you went. Now, they still are in many, many places in the world, but they sure really aren't in terms of what we're talking about. All of our financial intelligence is trained on abstractions. No place. There's no place there. And so, so thank you for mentioning the word rooted. That's a, that's a big part of what we're up to. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Woody Tosh. We're talking about his new book, Soil, 
Notes Towards the Theory and Practice of Nurture Capital. To learn more, please visit slowmoney.org, on Twitter at Slow Money, and on Facebook, Slow Money. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and then we'll get rooted again together. That's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about something that is pretty important, and that is caring for Mother Nature, cultivating sustainable well-being in today's changing climate. We're returning to the conversation with my guest, Woody Tosh. We're talking about money. We're talking about soil. We're talking about farms. And the why and how we must create more healthy soil on the planet, or certainly in our own backyard to start. Woody, how do we do this? Well, before we get into that next level of discussion, I would just say it's really important for people to recognize just the importance of soil. We said a few things about it in the last segment, but there are some very, very smart folks. I'm not talking about necessarily all the soil scientists and all those folks. They're included in that descriptor, but a guy named David Montgomery who's a MacArthur Fellow and has written his thir- just written his third book. His books are all about soil, soil and human health, soil and the arc of civilizations, tracing how previous civilizations that have declined have declined in tandem with soil erosion. So I won't say more about it here other than to, to call the listeners' attention to, you know, soil is really important. Jefferson realized it. FDR said a nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. That's FDR. He's not exactly a farmer type. And I, uh, I haven't tracked down what speech he said that in. It's an unusual thing for, for a president to say. But it's a really important topic, you know, in general. In terms of how we start, you know, doing it, this is really the beauty of the situation. It's actually pretty simple. A lot of it is not just, you know, is not destroying it. Nature blessed th- this country in particular with resources of soil, you know, in the Midwest, the virgin prairies. We are blessed pretty much more than any other country on Earth. This is not much of an exaggeration. With more topsoil and more navigable waterways, which is one of the reasons we are a great superpower. It's one of the things that allowed this country to develop the way it developed and allowed, you know, freed people over time to go into the cities and whatever because, you know, we learned how to um, turn those blessed resources into, you know, amber waves of grain, to use that phrase again. But 
we did it in an industrial way because that's all we knew. And it turns out that industrial way is destroying the soil over time. And there are, there are lots of stats that I would urge people to check out if they hear this and they think it's a little bombastic. We are losing you know, hundreds of millions of tons of soil a year. And I'm not sure that number is even big enough. A lot of it's going down the Missouri River and the, and the Ohio River and the Mississippi into the Gulf of New Mexico. And there are a lot of other problems other than that one um, in terms of uh, the way healthy soil does not hold uh, nutrients, the way it doesn't hold water. Uh, I'm sorry, the way non-healthy soil, I'm sorry, doesn't hold those things. Soil that is not rich in carbon is easily erodible and allows um, water to flow through it in ways that um, you know, are not beneficial for the long term. So, so I didn't really answer your question. I answered the macro, and the, the answer is it's simple. Um, don't take out more than we put back in. Don't treat the soil like it's a bank from which we can just withdraw forever without putting anything back in. Don't plow much. Try to plow less. And to the average person, I think they've heard about composting and whatnot. This is not rocket science. The average person can do things in their own backyard to build soil fertility if they just spend a little time and kind of um, get committed to the idea of putting things back in, not just taking things out. Well, I think it's, it's composting, you know, small raised gardens, even indoor, you know, gardens. If you live in an urban environment, you know, there's been a proliferation of rooftop gardening, being a patron of your local farmer's market. Talk about place. What a wonderful way to get back in connection with place than to buy food where it's grown. Right. And this is where the soil also works as a metaphor which is the soil of the economy, the soil of our community, the soil, I, call, I use the phrase the soil of a restorative economy, meaning all the small local businesses, the myriads of interactions, you know, among them being, being vital to the life of our community, just the way all the little microorganisms and earthworms in the soil are vital to the life in the soil. And, you know, the, the soil and our economy are kind of mirror images of each other. If we don't have healthy soil, meaning... We don't tend to all these little relationships. We just worry about a few big transactions, and the life and the you know gradually is degraded. Well, the same thing happens you know on all levels, and so that it really works as both a metaphor you know and as a practice as a practical thing. And let's talk about how every person can get involved on this level because what you're suggesting is not just for the elitist or privileged upper upper class. Anybody can get involved with um, investing in sustainable farming. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is a big thing we're talking about, but the actions are small, meaning the big thing is, oh, my God, our food and farming systems are so big, so industrial, so chemical laden. How are we ever going to change them? So it'd be easy to throw your hands up and say, oh, going to the farmer's market, what, it's a beautiful thing, but it's going to make a difference. And, and I think what you're bringing up is, is all the other layers of this that make it important. That is, this is about rebuilding community. You could even argue this is about rebuilding democracy. We don't, it's not a, you know, what we're doing is not directly political. But if people aren't connected to one another in the places where they live, and they have no idea where their food comes from or where their money goes, you know, their money is zooming around the planet, going into all kinds of crazy political and economic schemes of which they are largely ignorant, and then are, then are freaked out when they see the consequences. If, that, if that's the world we're going to live in, we're not going to solve the problem. No. So to your point, bringing everyone together from all different kind of socioeconomic backgrounds, um, this, what we're doing is definitely not only for, quote, the investor class, unquote. Um, we are talking about money, so that does 
narrow it a little bit. You know, there are some people who just won't even come into a meeting if it has the word money on it. It kind of scares them. But but we are doing all kinds of different things that are very informal, very community oriented, very all about kind of shared learning, collaboration. Uh, most of what happens in Flow Money are are meetings, meaning people get together in someone's house in a public venue. Sometimes they're big meetings that are you know well organized and have hundreds of people. A lot of times they're they're much smaller than that. And we get together and we meet farmers and we meet small food entrepreneurs and we decide if we can help them. And there's no professional intermediation. No one's in charge. No fees are charged. It's all, it's very open-ended and as inclusive as we know how to make it. And I can say a little bit more about that if you want me to get into the details a little bit more. I do. I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by the fact that this is all very meeting based, you know, so when we talk about harvesting happiness and we talk about community and connection and having that passion, purpose, place and meaning in life, this exemplifies this, 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 theme that we've got running around here anyways. Well, it's a, it's a funny thing. Sometimes when we're having meetings, I, I refer back to the wisdom of Oscar Wilde, who said the whole trouble with socialism is it requires too many evening meetings. And, uh, <laughs> but, then I, but then I always add, this is not socialism, but it is a highly sociable form of capitalism. So, so yeah, you have to have the time to do this. This is not clicking you know, on E-Trade. This is the opposite of that. It's the opposite of a tweet. You have to you have yeah. to be willing to enter into discussion with your neighbors. You have to be willing to get to know people. You have to um, appreciate the fact that the time you are spending doing this is not inefficiency. It's not like a cost that you have to endure on the way to a deal. This is the actual thing itself: getting together, rebuilding connections, relationships, trust, and a shared commitment. Wendell Berry calls this affection, meaning the affection, a deep affection we have for a place that makes us want to protect it and, and restore it. He also uses the word nurture, which is where I took the word nurture and nurture capital from. Just kind of a deep appreciation that, you know, thinking of caring for a place and a household and a piece of land, that's nurture. It's a different activity from traditional commercial mentality. So, yeah, the meetings are, that's part of it. And it is actually fun. I mean, those of us who actually get over the hump, who, who kind of let go of the other way of thinking, I'm just looking for a deal, get it to me fast so I can go off to play tennis or something. No, by the way, I, I like playing tennis, so it's not a knock on tennis players. But you know, you, you have to you have to get over that mentality and and like look forward to this kind of rejiggering of our social lives and, and realize this is. I want to go back to the word root. I think this is at the root of a lot of our social and economic problems that we're so disconnected from one another. We're, we're even disconnected from ourselves, which is why I resort to poetry, because that's about left brain and right brain and heart and mind. And, you know, I, I kind of, you know, quip at one point in the book about the relationship between fiduciary responsibility. That's that jargony term that, you know, about professional finance and what I call free range imagination. You know, we have to find a way to kind of break out of all of that, come back together. And, and, if, and again, all that's going to sound, if anybody just clued, you know, um, t tuned in right at that moment, say, what the hell is this guy talking about? It's so pie in the sky. <laughs> but it isn't because we're connected to farmers. And we're connected to our food. And it's very, very concrete. And once you do that, you actually do get to experience all the other things I just said, if you're open to it. Well, let's dial back here for a second. You know, no farms, no food, no people, no life. <laughs> well, that, that pretty much, 
summarize it, and uh, so and, and I will. I'll just put a, a broad historical arc on it because I do think that's important at this point in time, given how challenging the global situation is. Modern civilization started around ten or eleven thousand years ago with the advent of agriculture. So, so it's, it's more than just do we want farms down the street, which which is the most. But I'm with you 100. percent I mean, to simplify everything we're talking about, you know, do you want there to be more small and mid-sized organic farms within 50 or 100 miles of where you live? Do you think that would be a good thing? And then we yes. can talk about all the, all the reasons <laughs> why it would be a good thing. But there's also that broad historical arc, and it is big, and it is complicated. It is daunting. We are at the end of a kind of a historical cycle, and a lot of the systems are breaking down, and, and the food system is part of that. You know, a system that creates, let's say, 500 million Twinkies a year, which is still what's going on. 500 million Twinkies are being produced a year. It's kind of a funny indicator. But, you know, a system that is extraordinarily adept at producing cheap calories that can sit in plastic on stores full of chemicals, but they are cheap calories, which is important. I mean, that's, that's a thing that governments need to do, produce cheap calories. But we're so good at that that we kind of lost sight of all the other medium and long-term implications of that. And now those things are kind of coming home to roost. And some of those things are obesity, diabetes. There are immediate health things. And others of them are somewhat longer-term, very serious environmental problems you know, called climate change and carbon in the atmosphere. Well, we've run out of time, and you know we need to come back and have a conversation about the impact of farming versus Twinkies on our health. Because when we think about being a healthy person from the inside out, if we're sustaining ourselves on a diet of Twinkies, we're probably not going to live as long or as well. Certainly, if we live longer, we're going to have more health complications. But that's an entirely different conversation that's tied back into this. So maybe you'll come back and hang out with me. Will you do that? I, I would love to. I'm really enjoying talking to you. Me too. So we'll, we'll do this again. The book we're talking about today is Woody Tosh's latest, Soil, Notes Towards the Theory and Practice of Nurture Capital. To learn more, please visit slowmoney.org on Twitter at Slow Money. And on Facebook, you can find him at Slow Money. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And once again, that is a promise. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Phyllis Stiles and Woody Tosh, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.